You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's Bible reading is from Joshua chapter 23, verses 1 to 13, and then continuing on to chapter 24, verses 14 to 15. Joshua chapter 23. A long time afterwards, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts, puts to fight, puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Continuing chapter 24, verses 14 to 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello, if you've met me before, my name's Corin, I'm the Associate Pastor here. Uh, and I want to start off with a question. What are some of your favourite farewell speeches? For me, I think of The Lord of the Rings, where at the start of the story, Bilbo Baggins says this as his farewell speech to a group of other hobbits. I don't know half of you half as well as I should, as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. And they just sit there awkwardly, not knowing what to do. It was so good. And then he puts, and he says, farewell to you all. And he puts on a ring and he vanishes. Just epic. Or in the second Batman movie of the trilogy, 
with a late Heath Ledger, our own Heath Ledger, as the Joker. Whereas Batman rides away on his bat pod, the commissioner says in this epic final speech to close the movie, saying he's the hero Gotham deserves. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector, a dark knight, which is the name of the movie, right? Like a little on the nose, but just beautiful, right? Just way, what a way to end the movie. Well, over the past two months, we've been journeying with the Israelites throughout this book of Joshua, and we've seen God's chosen people transition uh, from a great leader in Moses to another in Joshua. Uh, we've seen Israel claim victories over other nations with uh, unexpected allies like Rahab as God was fulfilling his promise to give them this land. We've also seen God's people stumble, not dealing with sin, disobeying God and seeing the full consequences of their actions. But throughout this book, we've also seen the immeasurable grace of God, forgiving his people, continuing to fulfill his promises to them, even taking on other nations that should have never been taken in now to be included with his people. But even with Joshua as their leader, Joshua would not be able to see the completion of the entire possession of the promised land before his death. And so it's here today that as we end Joshua, where in the final two chapters, we read of Joshua's own farewell speech as he's now frail and about to pass. And it's an epic speech, a final charge to his people that he has for so long led. It's an important end to the book because just like how we started Joshua, here at the end of the book, God's people are left in a position of transition with their great leader to be no longer with them very soon and parts of the land still yet to be claimed, the Israelites were about to enter the unknown again, a time of great uncertainty, yet an undeniably crucial time that called for perseverance, trust and obedience. So Joshua, in his epic speech, wants to spur Israel to a life of faithfulness, to persevere in this life of faith and obedience so that they can accomplish what God had set out for them in obtaining this land. He's essentially telling them in this final speech to be faithful to the God who has been so faithful to you. And Joshua exhorts them with this detailed and, and final charge in these two chapters that is filled with encouragement, with challenge and with comfort. And it's in these his final words that I see three things in particular that stand out. A call to remember, a call to be wary and a call to live. Now, first, a call to remember, uh, looking at our passage at such a crucial juncture for the Israelites, what Joshua does first in his farewell speech to the Israelites is start off by calling them to remember all that the Lord has done for them. Look at chapter 23, verse 2 to 3. Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and, its, and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you've seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. See, throughout Joshua, a theme that's been clear is that the one who was at work in all of Israel's victories, who was the reason behind all the good, that came their way was God. It was the Lord God who gave them uh, victories and over other cities and nations, gave nations into their hands. So the fact that Israel was standing there listening to Joshua's farewell words, final words, in the safety of their own land with an abundance of resources was completely the work of the Lord. And Joshua reminds his people that, that they have themselves witnessed 
the Lord God at work and all that he's done for them for their sake. God fought for them. God fulfilled his promise to them. God was faithful to them. And so Joshua begins his final charge to his people by getting them to remember, remember back to what they have seen, what they have already seen, because he would soon be leaving them and they may be worried about what's ahead. Joshua wants to prepare them for what's next. And he starts it off first by having them reflect and remember the countless evidences of God's grace that that God has shown to them. See, Joshua sets the foundation that they must not forget their common experience of God's goodness, that they ought to remember that God is good and he has shown them, that he's shown them that all throughout. So I have a few friends in, uh, a few high school friends that we are still friends on Facebook and uh, legit once, as in back in high school, not, I'm not in high school anymore. I know, look at, but anyway, back in high school, high school friends on Facebook and legit once every year, once every year, They'll be talking in some random meme thread and suddenly just tag me and just reminisce about the good old days. You know, we just get tagged and just keep talking of this, this, this conversation and we'd laugh online about how we used to, you know, sneak up to each other, uh, sneak up to each other at lunch and then just quietly just like hit each other's lunch out of each other's hands so that our friend would have no food for lunch and then they'd starve. You know, yeah, good times, you know, good, great, good, great times. Don't do that now, kids. It's a very different time now, right? But legit, I haven't seen these friends since 2003. And we still remember these good times. Again, I'm saying every year I get tagged in this and we just reminisce about this yearly. See, it's often great when we're able to remember, you know, the good things and good times, isn't it? I think we can all relate. For us, it can be nostalgic and it can help us remember, uh, even celebrate. But thinking back isn't just something that we do because of the, the good vibes that we may get. It's not an exercise in some nostalgic self-indulgence. But in the Bible, remembering back, in particular, in relation to God, is actually seen as an important spiritual discipline. Psalm 103 verse 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Psalm 77 verse 12, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Or Psalm 9 verse 1, I will give thanks for the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. See, there's something spiritual about remembering what God has done in the past. Because I think what it does is it brings us to a position of thankfulness, joy and gratitude. You know, leading us to praise God for who he is and what he's done which is no wonder why we see in, in the Psalms as people are singing and praising, worshipping God, that we see them do exactly that, recounting the good things that God has done for them. See, for the Israelites, Joshua would call them to think back to all that they've seen and all that experienced with their God, Yahweh, to remember the wilderness journey, the conquest, the settlement, how God had led them through the desert, how he had defeated mighty armies and kings for them, how they had seen the amazing feats of the Lord God and how he has been committed to his people. God's people under Joshua had seen amazing moments of God's might, his power, his grace and his goodness. And so Joshua wants to remind them of this, helping them to bring them into a space of of thankfulness, gratitude, praise, and ultimately a space of trust. See, to prepare for whatever is ahead, Joshua encourages God's people to be faithful 
by daily remembering God's faithfulness to them, that the God who fought for them will continue to do the same as he promised. As theologian David Jackman says, says that there is neither shortage of commitment nor lack of ability with Yahweh. What he has done, he will continue to do. And that ought to deeply encourage us today. Like encourage me, I remember just recently, just this week, having lunch with somebody uh, from church with my wife, and we talked about how at one point in my life, uh, it was the time that I was probably the most anxious, Where and you've probably all heard this before, where I questioned whether I should move from my home city of Adelaide, which I was born and raised and had known for 25 years of my life, was I to up and leave everything and just go. And we thought, and we thought about it, and we chatted, and we asked, had I never left the city, I may not have gone to Bible college. Had I not left the city, I may not have met Lena. Had I not gone, gone I may, I may, oh, I'm going to mix up and saying it too quickly. Had I not left Adelaide, I may not have moved to Melbourne. Had I not left Adelaide, I may not have been able to know what city on here ever was. I may not be standing here right now today. And I often reflect on that decision when met with pivotal moments in the now, in the present, because it helps me to reflect on God and be thankful that I can trust in him now, looking how he has worked in the past in my life. See, for Israel, they were at a significant moment in time where change and uncertainty were looming. The unknown of what was ahead was likely unnerving. They could have been tempted to, to doubt God, tempted to be fearful, even tempted to make their own plans. And just like us, there are times Seasons in our lives where we may feel the same. Perhaps your job or financial status is about to change. Maybe you've been part of, you've recently been part of a relationship breakdown. Or maybe you're awaiting results of a scan. See, Joshua's call to remember back to the evidences of good God's goodness in your life is both helpful and encouraging because it helps us remember all that the Lord has already done for us. And to put our trust in him because we can put our trust in him who has worked for us before. It helps us have courage and faith to trust in God in the present and in the future. Because when we think back to the evidences of God clearly working in us, through us and for us, it can help us, it can help comfort us and draw us to an attitude of thankfulness and gratitude. So now as you head into your financial pinch, with a deep trust in God. You know that he has shown you grace and knows that he gives you what's necessary. Or now you can come to the Lord in gratitude and assurance for what you've learnt from that broken down relationship, knowing that he is working within you and that you can pray that he is also working within the other person. Or you come to the Lord with a deep sense of peace and comfort, knowing that the results you await are completely in his will and you've seen him work all things for your good. As, says in, as it says in the Bible, as Christians today, to think about and reflect on the rich grace and mercies that we've experienced from God shouldn't be a difficult task. Because as God's very own people, we can easily, firstly, think back to when God first found you, when you had experienced, first experienced that saving grace in Christ when you clearly grew from that person that you once were, when you did or didn't receive something, and now when you reflect and look back, you see that how God was working within that and that was actually for the better. Or when you, you look back and see how your life 
would be so different had you never known Jesus. See, what these experiences help and reveal to us is when we think back and reflect on them as his people, we have a God who is deeply committed to us. That as Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? See, when Joshua in our passage in chapter 23 says later in verse 14, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. He's essentially telling Israel and God's people that when you reflect and remember the God you worship deep down, you know in your hearts and souls that this God has never let you down, that he doesn't go back on his word but keeps his promises, that he never fails you. As Joshua chapter 21 verse 45 says, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And so the same for us as believers who have experienced, you have experienced his grace and mercy and commitment to you as Christians, that you have seen and experienced his awesome power, his deep affection and firm assurance that he has for his special people, calling us from the depths of this world into his, the heights of his love and salvation. As 1 Corinthians 1 says, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We can trust in our Lord. So if you are experiencing a season of great uncertainty, if you're anxious or concerned about what may lay ahead for you, take on what Joshua says here and daily remember what God has done for you, what God has already done for you. Because what you'll see is when you do it so regularly, when you continue just to think back and reminisce and remember what God has done, when you do it so regularly, you find yourself frequently coming to him in thanksgiving, coming to him in gratitude and coming to him in praise, able to trust in his plans. That when future times of troubles come, when uncertainties do arise, you find it easier to trust and obey no matter the circumstance because you're already so used to remembering God's goodness to you all throughout your life. As David Jackman writes, God's goodness in your life becomes not only a point that is historical, but it also becomes hugely motivational. So you desire to obey and trust in faithfulness. But while Joshua's last words encouraged Israel to to spur them on in faithfulness for what lies ahead, Joshua also wanted to warn them of the reality of what was to come as seen in their history and past before. Joshua knew that here were a people who were quite prone to go astray. While God's goodness, goodness was constantly on show with how he was so faithful to his people, his people would constantly disobey and be unfaithful to him. And so Joshua was quite aware of this. And so in his farewell speech, he exhorts the Israelites with what is my second point, a call to be wary. See, what has been the long repeating story for the Israelites was their, their lack of commitment to God. The generations earlier led by Moses, they grumbled and complained to God for any inconvenience, even wanting to go back to Egypt where they were slaves and in bondage rather than trust in the God who had delivered them and what he was going to give them. They were a people whose loyalties rarely mirrored the loyalty that God had constantly shown them. And Joshua was very aware of this 
being their leader for this generation. So in his speech in chapter 23 from verses 6 to 16, what you'll find is Joshua making his plea to his people to remain in continued obedience and loyalty to God as they continue claiming the land. As one author says, God is committed to fight for his people, but they have also to be committed to active trust and obedience in order to accomplish his purposes. And so Joshua charges them to be loyal to the Lord God by making them wary of the things that actually keep them from being loyal to God, mainly being their harmful associations with the people groups that they, that they have yet to conquer in the land and the pagan influences that come from these people's cultures. It's quite a specific warning from Joshua, but one that was necessary. And if you've seen how the Old Testament unfolds, it's a warning that Israel would have to keep hearing over and over again. See, Joshua tells his people here that they should not mix with these other nations remaining among them or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. He even says not to make marriages with such people that they would associate with them and Israel. It's quite a stern warning from Joshua. But it was important because we must remember in this context of his entire speech that he was giving them a charge to remain faithful to the God who is faithful to them. And so Joshua wants Israel to be wary of just how easy it is for them to become uncommitted to the Lord, especially when they mix with other pagan people and other pagan cultures. Because in their mixing with other nations, there was always a risk of being enticed into allying with them over remaining committed to the Lord. See, for the Israelites, Joshua's concern revolved around the faith-corrupting influences of the Canaanites in their daily dealings and intermarrying with them. Joshua was aware that if Israel were to continue associating themselves with the Canaanites, then odds are his people would be influenced by these same people even if they were unaware of this. That if the Israelites were to become acquainted with the people that they had conquered, it wouldn't be long before those whom they conquered would actually be the ones conquering them from within, in their hearts and spiritually, leading to grave danger for the people of Israel. As David Jackman writes, mixing with the pagan peoples around them always predisposed Israel to idolatry accompanied by its accompanying immorality. The two always run closely together in scriptures as in life. See, God's people were coming up to a pivotal moment in their history. Without their leader in Joshua and yet still a good portion of the land that was not yet possessed, they needed to be wholeheartedly committed to the Lord who fought for them. They needed to be actively trusting, obedient and committed to him in accomplishing his purposes. They needed uh, razor-sharp clarity and needed to put all their energy towards this. They needed to be disciplined, faithful, so that any distractions of any kind were completely not completely dealt with and not teased. With so much left to do and so much unknown, unknown ahead of them, God's people needed to prepare, prepare themselves daily for the battles to come. So it makes sense to why Joshua was so serious about what they needed to be wary of. Because the more they would associate with themselves with the people whom they conquered, the more likely they would become complacent, comfortable with their ways, leading to a gradual compromise of their values, their systems, and worst of all, their beliefs. 
Notice that in verse 12 of chapter 23, Joshua says, For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you. And the words turn back here are significant because Joshua is intentionally, he's purposefully calling back to the generation before them, who, as I mentioned earlier, would plot their return to go back to Israel, uh, to Egypt wanting to turn back when they groaned and doubted God in the wilderness. Here Joshua is saying that that generation before you was not committed to God, but wanted to go back to their Egyptian lifestyle, to their Egyptian ways of living. They were still attached to their past ways of life, meaning that they were turning back to Egypt, but also turning away from God and his purposes. And so to the Israelites, and so Joshua says to the Israelites, now, if you make associations with these pagan nations, intermingling with them, intermarrying them. You will be like those before you, enticed to turn back to your old ways, eventually turning your backs on God and living as you once were. See, these are impactful words from Joshua. As Jackman writes, to attach themselves to the nations would be to turn their backs on both God's call to be a distinctive people through their relationship with him, which set them apart from all others and also in all that his mercy had provided for them in the miraculous deliverances he had won for them. Which is why Joshua talks about the seriousness of intermingling and intermarrying for God's people then. This isn't about race at all. Like Israel, like, like he was saying that Israel were a superior and so shouldn't hang or marry other nations and races like they were better. But this was completely a spiritual matter that Joshua took it seriously, that they did not associate or marry those from other pagan cultures, otherwise risk turning their back on God and committing to the ways of unbelievers. See, Joshua makes it clear that there can be no compromise or complacency when it came to commitment to the Lord, because the Bible tells us that the human heart will always default to being uncommitted to the Lord. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Or Romans 3 verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, our daily temptation in our sin is to not live for somebody else, to not worship God, but to worship ourselves to live for us, us, to put ourselves in the ultimate supreme position. And so when all around us, the world and its influences are deceptively attractive, promising us things such as fun, fulfillment, favour, freedom, fortune, we need to be on guard. We need to be wary that there are harmful associations and worldly influences around us that can so easily draw us to compromise on our commitment to God. See, now hearing Joshua warn Israel not to mix with the other nations can be quite complex for us, can't it? Because as Christians, the Bible also calls us to be the salt and the light of the earth. You know, Mark 16, 15 says, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, to go be witnesses of the gospel to the world, which would mean we need to interact with the under unbelieving world around us. It's what Robert writer Robert L. Hubbard calls a, a delicate dance that's demanded of Christians. That is that delicate balance between living out that classic Christian line, you know, to, to be in the world but not of the world that you may have heard before. And that is certainly true. 
as the Bible does call us to share the gospel, which means we should be associating with unbelievers. We should be meeting with them, talking with them, welcoming them, laughing with them. We should be loving them. But what this passage makes abundantly clear is that we should not be influenced by them, not be willing to compromise our faith not be so comfortable in our association with non-believers that we find it easy to immerse ourselves in their values, their pleasures, their joys, their beliefs. See, for the context of Joshua, he knew the weakness of his people who had a long history of going astray, being uncommittal to the Lord. So he made sure to take the hard line with them, telling them not to even dabble in what they do at all, let alone join others, let alone join them in marriage. Like I imagine if you were a recovering alcoholic, the last place you'd want, to, you'd want me to invite you to would be a bar that would court disaster. So Joshua here wants to avoid that completely, which is why he tells them to steer clear of the Canaanite association, uh, associations, lest you turn your back on God and commit to their unbelieving ways. And the Israelites needed to hear this so badly because remember that the Israelites were at a huge crossroads at this point in their journey, not knowing who will lead them next, not knowing uh, what to do when there was still so much of the land to to claim. So what this means is that God's people needed to, to be even more resolute and even more on guard in their commitment to God during such a pivotal moment in their history. Because I think it's in these pivotal moments in our lives that we can find ourselves most allured and most enticed by worldly influence. You know, I had a faithful Christian friend from a church in Canada who was drawn to a a relationship with a a Buddhist fellow. So she was a faithful Christian, but he was Buddhist and she really liked him. He ticked every single box except the faith. So she asked advice from her countless Christian sisters all around who all said the same thing don't get into this relationship, it won't be wise, is what they all said to her. But she didn't like that answer. So she went to her non-Christian friends and asked this exact same question. And they all said, yeah, go for it. Why not? Actually, it makes sense for you to do this. My friend took on that advice and uh, took on the advice of her non-Christian friends. And sadly, I can say that she left the church altogether not long after that. It's quite a saddening story. When we're met with big decisions moments that may determine our future, I think that's when we are most vulnerable to be seduced into committing ourselves to things other than God. Those moments where we have a choice to either be faithful and obedient or go a different way. Because I think in those moments that that's where we're most tempted to not trust God. Much like the Israelites at the end of Joshua, when there's uncertainty ahead of us, when we're experiencing perhaps drastic transition in our lives, when we're faced with a massive change or a life event, it's very easy for us to lose trust in God. We can become anxious and worried where we don't see the forest for the trees, thinking about only what's exactly right in front of us. We may ruminate on everything that's out of our control, attaching our emotions to every single scenario that hasn't even happened, grumbling and moaning, not wanting to commit and bring it to God. And so when we're quite vulnerable like this, it makes it rather easy for us to be enticed by the world around us. We can intentionally or unintentionally listen and succumb to the influences around us. 
See, that comment from your non-believing colleague may tickle your ears. So you begin to trust in their wisdom and agree with all the advice that they give you. Or that TV show that, that had that character that you loved that went through the exact same thing as you. So you learn from their actions and imitate or what they do, what you saw on television. Or you read that news article or see that social media post which shares how the majority of, the, the, of your society feels in your situation and how they tell you how it should be dealt with. So you trust in what society has to say on the matter, following what the world deems as right. See, I just love this true story that uh, author Max Licardo used in one of his books. That one night, uh, there were two thieves visiting a department store uh, long after close, and they came and did their business uh, and left unnoticed. But rather than rob the store, they pulled an ingenious prank. They actually switched all the price tags on the items in the store. So a $500 expensive camera now had a $20 price tag, while something as an ordinary, like a box of stationery, now had a $200 price tag on it. The secret price tag switch revalued everything in the store. The next day, the department store did four hours of business before anyone noticed the switch prices. So whoever got things like cameras got an absolute bargain, while others who got things like uh, the box of stationery got, you know, royally ripped off, you know? See, the pranksters had assigned items, values that were totally out of whack with their actual value. Now, isn't that such a great illustration of the world today? See, why Joshua takes such a hard line to Israel to not associate themselves with the pagan cultures and influences of the people they conquer is because Israel are at a great time of uncertainty and vulnerability. Joshua wants, wants to make sure that they don't turn their backs on God and instead commit to pagan worldly values of the nation surrounding them that are completely out of whack, values that are not aligned at all to the Lord's, completely wrong valued. Remembering the God who had fought for them and will continue to fight for them, they needed to orient their lives to his, to God's values. They needed to trust and obey God for whatever lies ahead. But even though Israel was God's chosen people and he was committed to them, as scholar Richard Hess says, the land does not belong to Israel. Her tenancy is given by the Lord. It can be per perpetuity if they remain faithful to the covenant, but there is no inherent right to God's blessing come what may. The God who has given the land is equally at liberty to take it away. So as we know, Israel were not immune from great consequence, even as his people. And Joshua tells them that in chapter 23, verse 16, he says, If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he has commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. So God's people were left with a choice to allow worldly influence into their camps and into their hearts or to commit themselves to the Lord in faithfulness and obedience. And so Joshua in our passage makes it clear to God's people on what they must do, which is my final point, that Joshua encourages us with a call to live. And he lays it out with something so simple for us to understand. He lays it out simply with three clear calls on how to live as God's people, to be in the Bible, to cling to the Lord, and to love the Lord. First, to be in the Bible, he says in verse 6 of chapter 23, Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you. 
And it's quite profound that Joshua, in his final speech, says this. Why? Because if you remember, remember back all the way in Joshua chapter 1, verse 7 to 8, as God commissions Joshua to be the new leader of his people Israel, this is what God says to him. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. So the book of Joshua essentially starts and ends with this command to be in the word of God. That spiritual strength is found by obedience to this book, to God's words given to us. See, as we've seen over the past two months, Joshua's life has been a reflection of this. Well, he has made mistakes, as we've also seen, but we've seen overall he has proven to be a worthy successor to Moses. For Joshua led a fruitful and successful successful life, being obedient to the Lord as he regularly meditated and trusted in God's word. Joshua has led his people through many great successes and the word of God and his obedience to it was the evidence of his commitment to the Lord. He found favour in the Lord as the Lord was with him, fighting his battles, giving him victories as Joshua lived, lived in and by scripture. So Joshua calls people to live by this book Meditate in it, obey it, and think what being in the Bible does is actually make my first two points a lot easier to grasp because the more we're in God's word, the more we'll be remembering God's goodness in our lives because we'll be reading of his promises to his people constantly, reading about his goodness, his mercies, his grace, his love for his people since the beginning of time as we've seen all throughout scripture. So being in the word actually makes it easier for us to reflect back on the goodness of God because that's all we'll constantly see in this book. And the more we're in here, the more we'll be able to break the hold of worldly influence and idolatry that so easily entices us because what we'll see is in God's word, we'll see the folly and the falsehoods of the ways of the world while being stimulated to to live strong and courageously by his good word, obedient to God's will. So Joshua calls us to live being in in the word, but he also calls us to live clinging to the Lord. As verse, 20, verse 8 in chapter 23 says, But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. This word, verb cling is one of the strongest adhesive verbs in the Old Testament, used to describe a man holding fast to his wife, clinging to her in marriage as one flesh. It's a word to mean a deep, loyal devotion, a deep personal affection, a total commitment. That's what the word cling means here. So Joshua is reminding us that as God's people, the Lord expects his redeemed people to give themselves unreservedly to him. So the question is posed to us listening, reading this. Are we committed to the Lord, the God who so clearly is committed to us as seen all throughout the book of Joshua, creating us, knowing us, loving us, saving us, changing us. Are we daily remembering his commitment to us that we would cling to him like a husband to a wife, like a wife to a husband? See, it's in those pivotal moments in life 
those times and seasons of uncertainty, transition and potential hardship, we ask, am I clinging to the Lord? Am I trusting in his good plan and will? Am I obeying his commands and wisdom? Am I bringing my faults, my feelings, my my future to him? Am I devoted to him? Am I committed to him? Because the danger is if we don't cling to him, Joshua warns that we'll cling to something else. As verse 12 dreadfully says, if you turn back and cling to the remnants of those nations remaining among you. So he's saying that you either hold fast to the Lord and cling on to the Lord, or we either hold fast onto the world and cling on to the world. So Joshua calls us to live with one more deeper instruction that will help the other two of being in the word and clinging to God will help it make it all the more clearer. And that's in verse 11, to love the Lord your God. You know, author and pastor Tim Keller says, what makes people into what they are is the order of their loves. What they love most, more, less, and least. Your loves show what you actually believe in, not what you say you do. See, our desire to be in God's words daily and obedient to it, our commitment to cling to God in every circumstance and every situation is dependent on our love for the Lord. We won't be in his word if we don't love him the most. We won't cling on to him if we don't love him the most. Our love requires attention and energy. There's nothing automatic about it. As one writer puts it, the heart of of our faith is our heart relationship with our God. See, Joshua in his farewell speech reminds his people in this final speech that they have a choice. Are they to love their Lord and serve him? Or are they to love the world and serve that? See, in the final chapter of this book, chapter 24, you'll read of the Israelites responding to Joshua, saying that they will obey. So after Joshua says all this, the Israelites we will ob- say, we will obey, we will do these things. They said they'll be faithful to the Lord and they will serve him. Even though Joshua doubted them, he knocks them back several times saying, you're not able to serve God. You're not able to remain faithful. Yet the Israelites are adamant. You know, saying in chapter 4, verse 24, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. And so Joshua made a covenant with them that day. A stone was put up to remind them of that promise to do exactly that, to be obedient and to trust in the Lord. And the story is done. Joshua's work is complete. The narrative draws to a conclusion as he dies at the age of 110 and is buried. And he influenced, as he influenced the whole generation to serve the Lord. But if we keep reading, sadly, as we continue seeing in the Old Testament, only as far as the very next book, the book of Judges, we see everything that Israel promised to be completely broken. The God whom they were called to remember was forgotten. The influences and harmful associations they were made wary of was disregarded. The call to live faithfully and obediently was immediately ignored. You know, Robert L. Hubbard writes, Joshua's final message prepares Israel for a future without a designated successor, an era fraught with new possibilities or new disasters, all contingent on Israel's fateful choice. It's sad to see that what follows Joshua is Israel 
make the wrong choice, which would bring on new disasters and new pains. Israel once again showed their lack of commitment to the Lord their God, showing their disloyalty and wavering love towards him. And yet while God had every right to abandon his people, to no longer remain committed to them, God shows his love for them and us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even after God's people would over and over again disobey, distrust God, be loyal to everything else, commit to themselves to everything but God, God remained faithful to his people because for so long God had promised to send a saviour who would end this cycle and God stayed committed to his people and his promise, sending down his very own son to be the saviour who would take away the sins of the world by dying on that cross. That while we as sinners were uncommitted, untrusting, unfaithful, unloving towards our God, God remained committed, trustworthy, faithful, loving towards us. That while at the end of Joshua, God's people made false promises with a stone erected to remember that, in Jesus, God's promise to us is fulfilled as we remember the stone that was rolled away that morning at the tomb, as we'll be reminded next week as well. And it's in Jesus' very own final words, Jesus' farewell speech, that we can continue trusting that God remains committed to us. That as Jesus says in the last verse of the Gospel of Matthew, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is a wonderful promise that ought to bring us comfort and encouragement. That when we're faced with an uncertain future ahead of us, we can always remember back to the evidences of grace, God's grace and goodness in our lives, especially clearly seen in Christ on the cross who gave his life for us that we may live. That when at pivotal moments in our lives, we can be wary of the outside influences around us, but know that we are not alone, but we have a saviour who is with us to the end of the age. So by his strength, we can go on and do what he tells us to do. We can go on and go to his unfailing word. We can go on and cling on to him, onto his personal affections, and we can go on and love him who loves us with our whole heart. As author Dallas Willard says, the key then to loving God is to see Jesus, to hold him before the mind with as much fullness and clarity as possible. It is to adore him. So Joshua exhorts us in his parting words, let's live in faithfulness, obedience, trust and commitment to the Lord God who has shown his wonderful commitment to us. For as Joshua says in chapter 24, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that, our fa- that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what great might, power, love, mercy and grace you've revealed to us in your wonderful, wonderful word of Joshua. We thank you that you've shown us through your word that you are so worthy of our worship. We praise you that you are the same yesterday, today and forever. And in your word, we see of your magnificence and can be reminded of your faithfulness and commitment to your people. 
Help us remember that in times of need and hardship, help us remember that how we've experienced your evidences of grace in our lives, that we need not fret tomorrow, but have utmost trust in your goodness. Help protect us, Lord, from what so easily ensnares us. May we come to you in obedience, fleeing from worldly influences and associations that are harmful to us, that we are so prone to succumb to. And Lord, with your help, may we live for you. May we be in your life-giving word. May we cling to you with utmost assurance. May we love you with our whole hearts, bodies, minds, souls. For you are a God who loves us with your whole heart, giving us your son, Jesus, that we may be with you forever. Lord, may we remember all that you've done. May we love you with all that we are. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.